Heritage Radio Network's coverage of the 2017 Chefs Collaborative Summit is supported by the Julia Child Foundation. So a couple things that we're going to do. Just first and foremost, I wanted to get a chance to introduce myself. I'm Mark Oshima. I'm on the board. This is my second summit. And it's exciting for us to come together, for me to see the incredible spirit, the passion. It's about how we make a meaningful difference. And it's no more appropriate when we think about what's happening with Irma and how the organization's rallying around that. Um, I did want to share a little bit of background on who I am and just to give you a sense of my background, my connection with food, and give you a little bit of context about some of the things I'm going to be focusing on from the board standpoint. So my background, I have an extensive marketing background in food. I've managed and led marketing for supermarkets, for specialty food retailers, for restaurants. So the other side of the equation. But again, how do we tell stories? How do we understand what's important to the consumer? And how do we think about how we craft those messages? And my perspective really changed, though, about 15 years ago. Work, I got involved with the marketing advisory board for the Food Bank for New York City. And the work there, recognizing that one out of five New Yorkers are facing issues and challenges around access to food. And it's one out of four for children. So these issues in terms of our food system, the challenges in terms of food justice, are things that have been with me for a long time and thinking about how we can make a difference. It's really been the inspiration for the work I'm doing today. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders for Aero Farms. We're a pioneering indoor vertical farming company out of Newark, New Jersey. And we're thinking about a different way of farming, a different way of growing. We're able to enable production, bring the farm to the community. And so it's a way of growing that uses 95% less water, uses no pesticides. And so it's a different way of thinking about, again, the challenges we're seeing with Mother Nature and weather, how we can ensure from a food security, a more steady supply. We actually are one of the strategic partners with 100 Resilient Cities and Rockefeller Foundation. That's something that Atlanta is part of. So we heard yesterday Stephanie speak. So her whole role as a chief uh, sustainability officer is being funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. So we're working closely and thinking about how we can bring this approach to different farms all over. And so I'm really honored to be part of the board, honored to be working with uh, the leadership, working with Holly, working with the team. And the focus, you know, coming forward and moving forward is really thinking about how we build on the history here. Uh, one of the exciting things this coming year is going to be the 25th anniversary. And we're going to think a lot about in terms of how we celebrate the history, the members, the work that's being done and really celebrate that in a very meaningful way and how we then plan the foundation for the next 25 years. So some of the things I'm going to be joining forces with Derek, so some of the things that we're going to be announcing today. So we really want to acknowledge and thank Piper for all the tremendous work. So let's see if we can just go round of applause. I know Derek has a few more words to share. But the point is, Derek and I are going to be becoming the new co-chairs, and so that's one of the things that we're announcing today. And so we think about how we plan that future. Uh, some of the things I'm going to be focusing on is really going to be on strategy, on sponsorships, how we can bring more dollars in to create more programs, more uh, impact on a yearly basis, on a year-round basis. So just want to get a chance to uh, introduce myself, say I'm looking forward to working with everyone here, and looking forward to the bright future. So thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Evan Mallet. I'm a board member, um, also responsible for being a coordinator of local leaders, of which we have 18 around the country, which is amazing. When I first uh, came on board as a board member, we, I think, had seven. Um, so it's one of the ways that the organization is able to grow most effectively um, and disseminate the message of our mission 
vision and principles um, around the country and beyond. And that impact that we have had and been able to uh, expand is in large part because of the um, effect our locals have on their communities. Um, many of our local leaders are community leaders already. Um, their jobs as local leaders are to exercise the, the you know, great principles that we all stand by as Chef's Collaborative members. Um, but it's also to make the Kool-Aid and to have the uh, consumers of that Kool-Aid come to the table and join us and grow our ideals and our vision. So um, that is the, the, the pillars of the organization really and as um, you know, I'm, I'm so proud to be a board member uh, but also you know, the person who helps coordinate the phone calls. Um, we have one a month and when local leaders tune into those calls, we exchange um, and celebrate the work that we are doing, also learn from each other. And I just wrote an article for Southern Farm and Garden and I don't know if that publication is represented in this room right now, but uh, in that article I talked about, you know, what you don't know about chefs. Do you think you know a lot because we're, we are very visible right now? Um, what you don't know is that we actually talk behind your backs. And that's exactly what we do once a month. Um, you know, it's very productive. There's certainly some tomfoolery. If you were out last night at dinner, you may have seen uh, Lucha Libre masks on some of our, our local leaders um, engaged in uh, intimate physical contact at dinner, and that was uh, really part of what this is all about, too, is we bond in all sorts of ways, uh, legitimate or otherwise. And um, so that brotherhood and sisterhood, I wish there were more sisterhood, quite frankly, um, and that's certainly something that we are aware of um, after having heard discussions about race. Um, you know, it's, it's also the lack of women in our uh, food communities that we would like very much to see change. And um, without getting down that rabbit hole too far, uh, I just want you all to know that we are open uh, in every conceivable way to the voices and the ideas of each local community around the country. Um, being, becoming a member uh, is easy and finding your local leader um, is really just one click of a button on the computer. So um, I am available at this conference and, and after if you have any questions about local leaders. And of course, Stephen, our, our local leader and host in Atlanta, while, while you're here, um, can help answer some of those questions. But um, that's all I want to say for now. Please come find me if you have questions about our locals and continue to support the organization through them. Thank you. Thank you guys all for being here. Uh, we know we've had some crazy weather and uh, things that are just far beyond our control, but uh, I just want to thank you all for staying here for as long as you can. We know people have a lot of things going on with their travel and schedule, and it means a lot to all of us in this room, and it speaks to everyone here's value set, uh, system and, and desire to do good work uh, that, we, that we're all still here. So thank you so much uh, for all of you for staying here um, with us. And I know Mark um, touched on it, but I just want to really drive it home. Uh, I want to acknowledge and thank Piper. Um, Piper is a force, and she is just one of the most special human beings that you'll ever meet, and um, she's probably writhing uncomfortably with me saying that out loud, um, which I am, I am taking a little pleasure in that. <laughs> um, at a time when we really needed uh, leadership 
uh, most, and there was a lot of uh, tumultuation going on with the organization and just uh, our food um, you know, industry in general. Um, Piper stepped in as uh, the chairman of the board and really has just shown us visionary leadership and her tenacity and passion and commitment um, to our principles and really um, opening this conversation and, and keeping us on track is so appreciated. And so, so much love to you and thank you. So Mark and I are really honored and very excited to partner, you know, in the, in the whole um, idea of community. Uh, you know, we are gonna take on this role as, as a community together and really share these, these, um, these ideals and also share the workload and hopefully use our skill sets and our connections um, to um, help move the organization forward even further um, and continue on this incredible path of work that so many of us in this room have aspired to stay on and be part of mo moving forward in a positive direction. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to work with Mark. Um, he, he comes from a different background. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cook, I'm a chef. Um, I work in my kitchen. Um, you know, I'm sending emails and texts and orders in between speakers and trying to figure out who's gonna, who's gonna be running the kitchen Wednesday night if I don't make it home and uh, whatnot. So I'm, you know, I, I'm an, uh, an actual uh, part of my, my life is, is creating food every day. So I, uh, I come from that background. I, I came to Chef's Collaborative probably about 10, maybe 10 years ago or so when I was uh, having a really hard time getting some answers about sourcing food. I grew up in a community that was right on the water and uh, one of the biggest challenges for me was just trying to get the fish that was being caught just a few miles away from my, my door uh, into my restaurant to serve to my community and it was just staggering and so um, appalling to me that there was no avenues or no means to do that. And I, I, I came to Chef's Collaborative searching for answers and for resource and connection and I found that and so much more. And nine or 10 years later, I'm still here and uh, hopefully fighting the good fight with all of you in here. Um, there's something special about this group of people and this coming together in this community and um, it's resonant, I think, in these times when there are a lot of heavy things and we're seeing the power of food, the real power of food. We talk a lot, as we must, about the things that, the injustices and the, and the things that are, not, that are not right, that things that are broken that we need to fix. Um, but there are some people out there doing really amazing, very special work, and it's uh, very inspiring to be in the room with those people and to share these stories and find not only the will and the inspiration to move on, but also the resources and the means and the tools uh, and the connections to do these, to do these things on a, on a larger scale, but also within our communities and in our restaurants and in our businesses. Um, I just want to say that there were some great quotes from this morning so far, and it's only been a few hours, so I'm, I'm excited about the, the way the rest of the day is going to unfold. Um, we are fighting a global food system that has other ideas for us. And if that is not the truth, then I don't know what is, because that is so true. And to counterpoint that, chefs are the leading edge and voice of food. That's very powerful and it's very true. We are on the front lines. 
we do have a voice and we do have power. And it's exciting at this current point in time that we realize our true power is in our ability to connect, but also to source and serve and sell and purchase food and to create jobs, yes, but also to write menus. And through those menus, the things that we decide to put on those menus, our, our voices can become a unified front to create massive, massive change. And that is powerful. Uh, so it's exciting to be here and to be part of this organization at this, this point in, in, our, in, our, uh, in our future, in our tenure. Um, and I look forward to working even more with the rest of you. Uh, I'll be here for the rest of the, at least for the rest of the day until my, I might be here all week depending on what happens with my plane. Um, but chefs get shit done. And let's get some shit done. So now we're gonna hear a little bit about innovation in seaweed and cows. So through the miracle of time travel, uh, tomorrow morning is brought to you today. And this is the, uh, really the first public announcement of an initiative that we're calling Greener Grazing. And it's uh, innovation around seaweed aquaculture as a powerful strategy to reduce methane emissions from uh, livestock production. So you're hearing it first here. Uh, as humans, we're subject to some cognitive biases. Uh, and one of them is that we tend to expect the future to look like our lived experience. But I think pretty clearly we've entered a moment of lived experience that suggests our future is going to be quite different and hopefully we take from that inspiration to, to act. And that's what this initiative is really about. Uh, a lot of the conversation around climate change focuses on fossil fuels and CO2, but in fact methane is responsible for over a quarter of the warming effect that we experience today, in part because methane is such a potent near-term uh, greenhouse gas with uh, effects, warming effects 84 times as much as CO2 in its first 100 years. And one of the, the single largest source of methane emissions globally is from cow burps, basically, from ruminant animal production. Um, and so this is a, a project that really focuses on addressing that. Before the days of mechanical baling and storage barns, uh, really back into ancient times, farmers uh, would often bring their cattle to the seashore to feed them seaweed uh, as winter forage. And an enterprising uh, farmer in PEI about a decade ago noticed that the paddock that was located by the sea, those cattle seemed to be more productive and healthier than the cattle kept in other areas on his farm. And he engaged Dalhouse University, who indeed showed that cattle that were eating seaweed were, were emitting about 20% less methane than cattle that were eating conventional forage. Interesting. Uh, this prompted a team at James Cook University in Queensland, Australia, to do the first systematic evaluation looking at the impact of various seaweed species on methogenic uh, fermentation. And in that evaluation, they came across this guy, which is called Aspergopsis taxiformis. And when they tested Aspergopsis taxiformis, they thought their instruments were broken because there was effectively no methane being admitted. This was uh, in test tubes, and they replicated their findings, and then they began to feed it to animals, and again found uh, at very low inclusion rates, 2% of the diet, you could reduce the enteric methane formation by as much as 90%. Interesting. 
those results were just replicated at UC Davis. Nobody seemed to be paying attention to this. This is a kind of research that's out there, uh, but has yet to be applied. It's now been validated. Um, you probably have tasted Aspergopsis taxiformis uh, because it is the most valuable seaweed in Hawaii. Why? Pokey. And that really briny, interesting flavor comes from bromoforms. And this seaweed is very good at concentrating these bromoforms. And it turns out those bromoforms not only taste great, but they interrupt an enzymatic process in the final stage of methagenesis that stops the methane formation and actually leaves more energy inside the animal for digestion. So where does Aspergopsis live? Um, and it, it turns out to be quite a broadly distributed species. Um, you can see kind of the red areas throughout the humid tropics. There are thought to be five subspecies of this. And indeed, seaweed farming around the world is really booming in the tropics in particular. Uh, there's 25 million tons of seaweed being produced, but none of it is of Aspergopsis. And when you think of the two billion ruminant animals in the world, uh, this is a, a really significant challenge for which the wild supply is no way uh, positioned to support adoption of this innovation. So we've created a, a, what we're thinking of as kind of a mini Manhattan project. We're bringing together the best minds to unlock the mysteries, and indeed there are real mysteries, uh, to begin the first ever commercial cultivation of this seaweed. And it turns out this has a, a, a kind of a nasty uh, triphasic life stage. It has two completely different morphologies. You see uh, on the left what is called a, uh, a gametosphore, which is a free-floating pom-pom uh, that occasionally, and for reasons we don't well understand, undergoes uh, an initial stage of reproduction, then that leads to a second stage of reproduction. This is really kind of gender-bending stuff that then leads to this really bushy and productive and fast-growing uh, tetraspore-type phase that you see, which is more bush-like. And our vision for this, uh, as we hope to crack the code on unlocking the life cycle, is that we can then begin to culture seaweed uh, in concert uh, with open ocean aquaculture. Um, which we're doing today with other seaweeds that are used for carrageenan, but really are effectively kind of the bridge to this much more interesting set of species. Uh, and so going forward, when we think about a new vision for the ocean's role in our food system, and of course we live on a planet that's 72% covered by the oceans, uh, lots of photosynthetic activity, lots of primary productivity, Aquaculture is the fastest growing part of the food system over the past two decades. We need to begin to reimagine aquaculture as an integrated system with cultured seaweed that begins to absorb nutrients that are coming from land and returning benefits uh, beyond just the fish and food, but to climate more largely. So how can chefs help? I mean, I think really our vision is that we need to begin to merge the conversations around land farming and ocean farming and think of them as ultimately an integrated whole and to reimagine that system and, and to have you guys really help us shift the conversation around that. So that's a, a kind of a sneak peek and uh, thank you. Many of you know Hugh Atchison uh, from his amazing food, from his general good looks, from his uh, work as... <laughs> 
um, on, in his restaurants and in television. And Hugh, I, I like many reporters like Hugh because he always tells us the straight up truth when we call him, so there's no fake news. Um, and here to talk about his, uh, his heartfelt project to bring cooking back to America, um, Hugh Atchison. Uh, there's a recurring person who will be talked about in this uh, speech or whatever this is. My, I, I take the shittiest speech notes, so I just kind of throw them out in a second. But uh, my daughter Beatrice, who's an uh, amazing human, even if she wasn't my daughter, she's still like badass. Um, when she was eight years old, she looked at me and she was like, when I was younger, I thought quicksand would be a much bigger problem in my life. She's, yeah, and well, what she didn't know is that the world is setting up hurdles for kids all the time, and this next generation has more hurdles in front of them than ever. So, one thing, uh, we'll talk about uh, advocacy overall and what it means to be a chef these days, and I think it addresses a couple of the concerns that were brought up earlier about uh, just when Tunde was talking about chefs just creating meals and being laser-focused on the food and not their environment around them. I've always been focused on the environment around me. If I was a dentist, I'd be thoroughly involved in my community. I just happen to be a chef, so it's very food-centric. Um, so success as a chef to me means not how many awards I win, not how, many, uh, how much money I make. It's more about how many people I employ how, uh, and the effect I have on my community given the skills I have. So my headstone needs to be read as not like uber successful guy. It needs to read as nice human, period. So a lot of when I'm, I'm very vocal um, and I'm kind of outspoken and uh, on Twitter uh, mostly. I'm a jackass on Twitter. Um, and a lot of the comments I get back are things like, this, these are rarity, uh, not too common, but it does happen with fair frequency, which is get back to the kitchen which I'm always like, what? I don't really understand what you're saying. That we're not allowed as chefs to be members of a society and speak our minds. And it's like when Hollywood gets bashed as, you know, you shouldn't have viewpoints like that or whatever. It's, we're, we're allowed to speak our minds and that person has chosen to follow me so they can unchoose that too. So advocacy as a chef to me means, first of all, getting engaged within your community. And my community is a strange one. Uh, the blue dot is me, but I'm Canadian, and I've lived in that blue dot for just about 20 years, and my two kids live there and go to public schools, and Athens, Georgia is interesting. It's different from Atlanta in a lot of ways because it's a small town uh, that's very university life, but it's also a town with 37% poverty um, and bettering public schools and agrarianism right on its borders. Uh, we, I have two restaurants there and we've been very impactful uh, to the community of food there. But more so, we wanted to have impact in a different way. And um, one of the reasons we started being impactful in, in trying to create stuff was going to the James Beard Boot Camp a while ago which was a great way just to show, like Chefs Collaborative does, how to be an advocate and how to advance an idea as a chef to a bigger position. How do you start an endowment? How do you start a nonprofit? So people from the Pew Charitable Trust, people like Eric Kessler, were really uh, involved with me getting my idea off the ground. Um, so my idea is a very simple one. 
Uh, Beatrice, the same, Beatrice is now 15, and she's really tiny, but she's awesome and really bright. She came home about five years ago and four years ago from sixth grade, first day of school, and had had family in consumer sciences, and which is the modern term for home ec. And Beatrice explained to me that she learned how to make red velvet cupcakes from a box and how to take um, Hormel bacon and wrap it around an instant croissant and bake it in the oven and how to take prenatal vitamins. So. <laughs> The last one I didn't really care about, though she was 10, um, <laughs> but it's more to the point that the prenatal vitamin is actually called one a day, and there's a, there's a message right there, read the package. So we don't need to teach kids about this, later on you can or whatever, but what they weren't learning was skills. So home ec was originally the idea, it was very gender specific, it was how to prepare women to, or young women to be good mothers and how to keep a home. So that is hopefully an outdated phenomena um, that we all need to be given skills to survive in life, to get through the next hurdle that's gonna come about. Um, so we, I, I talked to the school superintendent, we uh, had some harsh words, we're very good friends now. Um, and he was like, you should write a curriculum. So I was like, well, I don't really have time because I have this other gig I do uh, called being a chef. But obviously I said yes. And so we developed this curriculum and it was, it's, it's, was meant for the Athens-Clark County Schools, but we realized that through funding from a couple of great foundations that we could build something that was relatively open source and free to everyone. So actually, as of last week, uh, this curriculum, which is, it's, it's not meant to be a new class. It's still meant to be home economics and family and consumer sciences. It's a contemporizing of something. We get new phones every six months, right? Well, we haven't changed home ec curriculum for 55 years. They're still teaching the red velvet cupcake and out, outdated things. They're teaching recipes and nobody needs to learn recipes. We need to learn ways of getting through life and that's technique. So the food aspect of it is how to roast a chicken. And this is, these are skills sets for everyone. I don't really even care where exactly the food comes from because the biggest problem we have is endemic poverty. So the first step is fixing some of that and giving people the self-sustaining ideas and techniques to get through life. So it's how to make a vinaigrette, how to roast a chicken, how to make a salad, how to make rice that's not minute rice. Um, but these are, uh, these are skill sets that we lost through convenience. But we're I'm thoroughly convinced that if 90% of kids go through a public school system and learn how to make an omelet, in 10 years from now, we have a better society built on kids being willing to say three things confidently, three words, I got this. So for every kid of every shape and size in athens Clark County now in grades six, seven, eight, Seed Life Skills is the curriculum they take. So it's in active in four middle schools. The curriculum's completely free on the web for any school. It's been downloaded a thousand times in the last week. Missouri is very popular. I don't know what's going on there. But so across the country, people are downloading this curriculum. And uh, it is uh, right now free for, yeah, any school. So it, it encompasses canning and pickling and preserving. Uh, this is Almeida, my co-founder, and she is amazing. It is just getting kids familiar with food and skill sets. It's also got a lot of financial stuff in it. It's how to read a lease. Uh, we won't show that guy yet. Hold on. Um, it's how to lease, read a lease. 
It's how to sign a cell phone contract. It's what the small stuff that pops up when you sign your Equifax agreement to go in to look at whether they leaked your information, what all that shit means. It's all these things that just prepares kids to be better citizens later on, to make proper choices. But it's also things like, how do you fix a toaster? How do you clean something? How do you do things sustainably? How do you recycle? So it's, it's kind of like, I don't remember trigonometry. I don't know if anyone does. But if I can teach a kid who comes from a relatively impoverished household in Athens, Clark County with a mother who works three jobs, if I can teach that kid how to poach an egg and saute spinach, I'm winning. So these are the simple ideas that we want to conquer. So that's what Seed Life Skills is doing. But then I was starting to think about like, why are we advocates? Why, why every time do I do a media interview, people are like, chefs do so much for their communities. <laughs> And I, I don't really have a good answer. I think there are a lot of people out there who do good for their communities, but I think the idea, in some way, shape, or form, this has a micro uh, reasoning for me because I would like to have a workforce who understands what a beat is in 10 years. And the macro is I have a chance to better my community and I'm very hellbent and interested in making sure I have that impact and can continue things and make things better for all kids of all shapes and sizes. So that's the idea. But it's funny how activism and advocacy has become a real hallmark of being a chef these days. So we'll go through some examples of that. This is Food, food Policy Action. That's Tom. He's grumpy but very effective. Um, Tom, Tom is, uh, did a place at the table, uh, which is an amazing documentary with his wife, uh, and he's just been a, a really outspoken activi activist on the Hill and is uh, doing policy work all the time. This is Ryan Smith, who is actually quietly one of my partners at Empire State South, and he was the chef there for years. Uh, Ryan is the chef of Staple House and founded The Giving Kitchen, which has done so much to give back to the community of Atlanta. Uh, and it's just an amazing, amazing person. These are just three examples. This is Mark Vetri, who, you know, you could call out Mark for selling his empire to Whole Foods or not, sorry, Urban Outfitters, which probably will be bought by Amazon soon too. Um, but he pivoted around and has given back through his family foundation, his community partnership thing, more than anybody could ever have expected. So the, the reason chefs give back is we're people. And we can have impact, and the fact that you guys want to follow us on TV and stuff like that on Twitter, maybe our impact could be better and bigger. Um, impact is the most important thing you can wrestle with and figure out how to use. Um, so th this idea of seed life skills was, it, okay, the most important, more, most important thing that you ever understand about starting a nonprofit is your new job is raising money to get through to the next day. <laughs> so that's the most difficult reality of starting something and coming up with a position that you want to stand behind and create something. It becomes a full-time job of fundraising, which is not very fun, um, but we've got a very engaged uh, group behind it now and it's growing. And we're at the point where it's pretty much done so it can just be downloaded. Um, so it'll be a living curriculum over time. Um, but it's, uh, it's been fun to do. Anybody got any questions? Kim?
it's meant to be implemented in grades six, seven, eight uh, in all pu in public schools that still have home ec or family and consumer sciences classes, which are being canceled at a pretty rapid rate. The good thing about the program is it's really easy to give to teachers to have it be a a part of their curriculum or be a complete swap of a curriculum but it doesn't take any more money necessarily to do. It's not a newly created idea. It's fitting into a current classroom structure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, the, the first thing when we started writing the curriculum is talking to hedge fund managers and like heart doctors and stuff like that, people who are like extraordinarily talented and skilled and learned people uh, are all, <laughs> the most common thing they would say is, is there something like that for me? <laughs> I mean, because nobody knows how to poach a fucking egg anymore. Um, or like the fact that vinaigrette is the most simple ratio in the world that keeps you away from an entire entire aisle in the supermarket for the rest of your life and is more exciting to make it from scratch anyhow. But so reconnecting people with food and the basics of food is really important. One of the biggest travesties of being a chef that I think we have to answer to is making food precious. And the fact that we've made it really precious has pulled the ability and want for people to cook a lot of the time. They leave it under our hands. And cooking is a, like, needs to be like a homesteading skill that everybody has. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs, I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. Uh, next up, um, we're gonna have a conversation between Tamara Jones, who's the executive director of the Southeast uh, African American Farmers Organic Network, SAFON, and Matt Rayford, who has a farmer in the larder and also Gilead Farms. Um, uh, Tamara grows organizations and Matt grows food. And I think together they're gonna make uh, an outstanding discussion. Come on up. Ooh, well, we're, we made it here. I'm barely looking at you, I'm gonna t turn my chair. Okay, okay, <laughs> awesome. Okay, let's, we're gonna face off, so to speak. So, Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network. Um, my story does not start with me cooking. Uh, my story starts in 1812 uh, with Jupiter Gilliard being born a slave in South Carolina. Making his way down in 1874 after the Civil War to Brunswick, Georgia, carving out 476 acres of land, paying $9 in taxes in it, and then creating what is now Gilliard Farms and the farm that my sister and I are um, trying to reclaim and bring back up to a much larger point. What's interesting about all of this is that uh, in the chef world, it's really interesting what Tunde brought up was uh, my father was a baker by trade from the 50s and 60s. And he forbade me from going into the culinary industry when I graduated from high school, even though I wanted to be a cook in 1985 because he did not want me to go into a servitude mode. He knew of no African-Americans that had ever made it into management. Um, even though he was coming from Connecticut and New York doing those things, he hadn't seen anyone become an executive of any sort. 
And for him, uh, cooking was only about service, especially if you looked, walked, and talked like me. When I decided I wanted to come home for farming, my mother was like, you got to be crazy because I am not go. I decided to leave and not do it anymore because no one's going to give us a chance. Then my grandmother, who just passed a year and a half ago, explains to me, well, I explained to her what organic farming is and what sustainability is all about. And her response to me is, so baby, you gonna go to learn from some white folk what we already know how to do. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to UC Santa Cruz to this amazing program called the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems and I'm gonna learn how to do this. And she looks at me and she goes, tell me what you learn when you get back. So I came back after living there for six months and I started explaining to her what I learned about organic and sustainability. And she goes, so I'm gonna ask you this one more time. You went there to learn what we already have always known how to do. And so we started right off by our compost system. It was completely made out of fish scraps, um, completely made out of shrimp scraps. So that's what I started doing, 800 pounds. That's what we bring in. In that process, I was looking for other farmers that look like me, walk like me, talk like me, the same way I have done throughout my chef career. And that's how I came upon Saffon. And having a wonderful conversation about where we're going and what we're doing and where we fit into this sustainable organic practice thing and why are we being certified for something that we've always done. Weren't allowed to buy fertilizer. Had no money in the first place. And to now have to pay thousands of dollars to become certified or to get into certain markets, you have to fall under certain things, which is almost an exclusive thing to say that now you can go to a farmer's market, I need to connect with someone to explain that to me. And that is why I think the mission of Saffon is so very important. And I'd like for you to give us some more background on where we're going based upon our resistance and resilience that we've always had in place because it was forced upon us to be resistant, forced upon us to be resilient. So, so thank you, Matthew. And I also want to connect, I guess, to some of the conversations we had earlier. You know, I'm reminded in listening from good food purchasing to uh, modern-day slavery in the food supply chain to white supremacy to even school systems work, um, that really a lot of our work is about coming to terms with the systems that we are all embedded in. We're all embedded in these systems. And part of, be, for me, being in the local food movement, it's a social change, a social justice, it's a systems change movement. And so, you know, being reminded about things like white supremacy or, or, or slavery is, not a, is, is an invitation to locate all of ourselves, each of ourselves individually in that system. So um, just for those of you that maybe less familiar, Saffon was founded around 10 years ago 
by Cynthia Hayes and the work of Dr. Wusu Bendele. Um, they saw this burgeoning organic market and saw that black farmers in the South were really not participating or positioned to participate. At the time, there were no, I think only one a certified black farmer that they could find in, in the southern states. And so that. they began offering a training and leading black farmers through the process of getting certified. Uh, they graduated that first class back in 2006, um, and we've grown that network. Currently, we're active in eight states in the South and the Virgin Islands. There's a cooperative um, on St. Thomas, which God only knows what the state of that is today. Um, you know, we, we formulated this conversation around a notion of strategies of resistance. The fact is that for some of our communities, black farming communities, we are very consciously aware that we are trying to build and thrive and survive in a system that has historically been actively positioned against us. And so when I thought about, you know, what to share, I wanted to share these three uh, strategies that I think we intentionally embrace with Safwan. One is the importance of telling your own story, um, engaging in direct um, change work that is rooted in a spirit of collectivism and cooperativism, and creating space for healing and for collective wisdom to emerge. And so just really quickly, you know, we see our work as continuing a line, a legacy of work that dates back to almost the founding of this country, or at least black people in this country, right? So the first black farmer cooperative was formed at the end of the 19th century in Texas um, because white farmers wouldn't allow them to participate and to access the markets. In five years, the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative went from zero to one and a half million members in this country and did a tremendous amount of work, not only in terms of purchasing, you know, collective purchasing and bulk discount, but creating grocery stores, all of the things that we were shut out of learning how to do and build for ourselves, right? We see ourselves as part of a tradition that also includes Fannie Lou Hamer in Sunflower County in Mississippi, right? Forming a cooperative with 1,500 of the most, I mean, dirt, dirt, you say dirt poor, but dirt poor, 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 poor tenant farms, you know, and that is still a reality today. When I go to Mississippi, you know, to visit some farms, people surrounded by food who are starving who don't eat fresh food, who are growing food and, can't, and are not eating what they're growing. Um, we see ourselves as part of that tradition. And even today, the continuing legacy of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives was just celebrated their 50th anniversary last week, you know, founded in Epps, Alabama. So when we talk about um, uh, doing this work, we, we locate ourselves very much in a lineage. So the first thing I want to talk about very quickly is telling the importance of telling your own story. You know, for us as black farmers, there is part of privilege is that it tries to, it, it takes the power and tries to construct who you are. And so for us, a lot of that might be around race and class, but you know, if you're in local food movements, you know, alternatives, those of us engage in alternative work, we represent a challenge. And there are others who try to frame our story for us. You know, in 1982, the US Civil Rights Commission said, given the rate of land loss, black farmers were going to be extinct in America by the year 2000. 
That was an actual federal report, and we're not. Now we're actually seeing a resurgence of black, farm, black farmland. Part of that is due to farmers like you and the farmers in Saffon. You know, a lot of our farmers are heritage farmers. These farms have been in their family for over 100 years. The, the process of acquiring black-owned land was an act of resistance and liberation. The process of maintaining that land debt-free, <laughs> debt-free, all of, they don't have mortgages, is an act of resistance and liberation. Um, and so that is a real asset that we're about trying to unlock. A story we heard is that black farmers don't care about organics or the environment. You know, and to your point, we've been farming organic. And you forced know. to. Forced, uh -huh. almost forced to farm Sometimes forced because we get locked out of the chemical there markets, you right? Um, you, you're not allowed, but then also, of necessity, a lot of those practices and ancestral practices now are being rediscovered, re-emerged, and that's been part of our ongoing identity and practice, right? And then the original group of Saffon farmers that went through the organic certification, none of them had to go through the three-year process of waiting for their land, hardly. Um, no, because right. it was already... They were already <laughs> right, they were already doing it. They're so. already doing it. Right. You know, one of the things we're doing today to, un to retell the story, um, currently today we hear a lot that it's not possible to farm organic in the South because the weather here, there are too many weeds and pests, which is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Like before chemicalized farming, what did we do in the frigging South, right? But part of what we have to do today is things like partnering with Georgia Organics. Um, we've just pursued funding to do a demonstration organic peanut project on one of our farms. Oh my God, five minutes left. Um, so we're very proud of that. Um, just a couple of other things that we're engaged in that might point to um, some of the strategies of resistance. You know, when it comes to cooperativism and collectivism, American capitalism tells us it's all about the individual entrepreneur. And what our history and our experience shows is that our greatest power for individual success comes when we tap into our collective efforts. We are piloting a project right now for a uh, farmer village in South Georgia, where I've got farmers that have 100 acres and they're farming five. And they want, and we're trying to solve 12 problems at once. Affordable housing, social isolation for beginning farmers, um, you know, access to equipment. So we are actually putting up yurts and tiny homes on these farms and creating effective mini cooperatives. They may not be legal, but they're many, you know, legal cooperative structures, but they're mini cooperatives. Well, Judah said we have a, a history of fighting the good fight no matter what, right? Right. Here we go. So now we can share the cost of a tractor. You know, not one farmer has to take on that cost for themselves. Um, we're doing a little black book project. We're going around and actually doing an oral history, um, capturing some of the ancestral farming wisdom that is dying out. You're not gonna find any of this in any book or website that you go to. Passed down for generations and they were on the verge of losing because the younger generations aren't going to farming so they're not there to receive. You know, so if I could just jump to the end for the last two minutes, you know, I guess for me bringing it back to sh talking to all of you as chefs 
is how do you make sense of this? So what? You know, the so what question, why should you care? And I go back to your principles for the collaborative. You know, one of your principles is about serving as models to the culinary community and the general public. And the question has become, who is your community? Um, yes, other chefs are part of your community, but you're located in local communities that are more broadly defined. And so, you know, what's the story that's being told about those communities and about who you are and the role that you play in those communities that I think is absolutely critical. Um, I look at your principle that says you want to be a catalyst for positive change. And one of the things that's, I think, really clear in our history is that there is no single issue approach to this. People, we don't live our lives as single issues. So yes, you're cooking meals and food, but that food is linked to slavery, which is an economic issue. It's linked to labor practices. It's linked to the immigration issue. It's linked to soil and air and water. It's linked to everything. And so as chefs, how do you see yourselves within that broader context of institutional, social, and cultural change. You cannot avoid it. Um, you're either part of the solution or you're, you know, you're, you're going to be part of what we're fighting against. And many of you are here because you see yourselves as part of that solution. And that's why I'm here, uh, excited to be working in partnership with you. Um, and the last thing I want to throw and leave you with is love. So part of what I'm doing with our team as we are rebuilding and relaunching this new phase of Saffron is it's about people. It's not about the food. It's about people. And we have to find a way, you know, we talk about you cook with love. And food is a place where we get together to, you know, express love to each other. But the way in which we build our organizations and our businesses also have to reflect, I think, a value of love. And so how will we... Um, showing love for the people that we hire, the people that we work with, the people in the communities, the people that grow the food, the histories, um, the communities that produce the histories of, of the, the place that we're working in. Um, how does love transform what you do as chefs and as, um, as activists in a, in a local food movement? So cook with your heart and let it come through your hands. Yeah, that works for me. There you go. Thank you. So we're gonna have Daniel. Let's see Johnny over there. Maria Elena. Daniel, you know. Sake, Sony. Sake. Sake. Um, Executive Director of the National Guest Worker Alliance. Um, and we have Johnny Livesay. Am I saying your last name right? Livesay Livesay. That was his band in college. Co-founder of Black Star Co-op in Austin. If you were gonna change diversity for these chefs who are running restaurants, what do you think are the most important thing they can do? We'll start with you. So I thought you, um, Daniel, raised really, really important points. Good morning, everybody. Buenos dias. My name is Maria Elena Incapié. Um, I say it's building community, right? It is about taking care of the people, both the people in your restaurant and the people in your community, the people who are coming um, to your restaurant, um, and making sure that you are reflecting um, society, re reflecting our country, and making difficult decisions institutionally, um, not just talking about it. Um, I'll kind of touch on some of the things that Daniel also said, um, which is to move away from the sort of systemic um, hiring practices that are pretty much the dominant paradigm in the restaurant industry where you have people of color in the back of house and white people up front 
um, and really starting to ask people what they want to do. That way, your dining room starts to look a lot more like your clientele instead of just a bunch of white people serving you food. Well, I'm a labor organizer, and I represent workers on the supply chains of many restaurants. Um, the seafood supply chain, the dairy supply chain, the logistics supply chain. I represent the workers who are impacted by the economy of the restaurants, but not working there directly. Um, I would say if your question is about improving diversity in the restaurant, you know, Rock is the preeminent organization that represents those workers. This is a model partnership, and I think here you have the blueprint for institutional change. And I think the question is, can you afford it? Because we live in a political economy of race. Every restaurant is a little economy of people serving and people being served. And those people can either be interdependent and look to the future, or they can continue our past practice of one group of oppressed people serving another. And um, I think Daniel's right on. I think it's good to tell stories. That's important. Community is important. But if the, the economics and the institutional practices don't hold up your house, um, then, then you just have community and story um, and not results. So I, I actually think this plan uh, needs to be adopted and we need to figure out how to, how to make it work financially for all of you. Talk to me a little bit about what you all are seeing in terms of um, Im the immigrant community in the restaurant business right now. Um, some folks are leaving the country. We have the DACA situation hanging over us. Um, what, what are you guys seeing from the ground right now in terms of, and we also have some very, you know, patrons who suddenly feel like it's okay to be outwardly racist um, uh, in, in our restaurants. So tell me where things stand for you all and um, can you maybe kind of give us some focus on where we stand culturally around immigration and the food business? Sure. So let me tell you a little bit first about the National Immigration Law Center. Um, I'm an immigrant from Colombia myself. My father was recruited um, to be a textile worker in Rhode Island when we had textile mills. Um, and our mission basically is to try to ensure that today's low-income immigrants, uh, many of your uh, workers, many of your teams, your staff, your community members, that today's low-income immigrant families have the same rights and opportunities that my family had and that generations of immigrants and refugees like many of your uh, families or ancestors have had. You know, we talk about this nation being a nation of immigrants. It's not. It's a nation of Native Americans, of indigenous communities, and with the exception of African Americans who were forced to migrate here through slavery, you know, this country, what's happening right now is a defining moment where the administration um, is staffed by white supremacists who have a blueprint to change the face of this nation, the changing demographics in this nation, and the threat of people of color, whether it be African Americans, native born, or whether it's immigrants like myself and Socket. Um, it is a defining moment. Uh, we are seeing and experiencing even much worse policy changes than the rhetoric during the campaign. Um, you may think that the people who are being detained are the bad hombres that Trump talked about, and in fact, it's not. 
um, one of the uh, individuals that we have the honor of representing at the National Immigration Law Center is a young man by the name of Juan Manuel Montes, uh, who was picking crops during the day in California and paying for community college at night to become a welder. He was um, picked up for walking while brown in Southern California by Border Patrol. He didn't have his wallet on him at the time, and with three, within three hours, he was deported to Mexico. He is one of the young people with DACA. He had work authorization. He had the legal ability to live, study, work here in this country, in the country he calls home that he's been here since he was seven years old. And Juan Manuel is still out of the country. He's still in Mexico. We're still fighting to bring him back. And he was disappeared in the middle of the night within a matter of three hours. That can happen to any of us in this country. That is what you call a police state. And that is what is really facing immigrants in this country. Um, with the DACA program, uh, many of you have probably heard about, right, this is young immigrants who this is their home. They have been here since they were children. They're studying. We're talking about 800,000 young immigrants who are Americans, except that this country doesn't recognize them as such. Uh, President Trump terminated the program last week. We filed a lawsuit within hours of that to challenge um, Trump's uh, termination of the program. Um, and you as chefs have so much to do with this. You know, I would hope that coming out of this conference, you would issue a statement and join the many business leaders across the country's cultural leaders. And we have the momentum we've never had on this issue before, where people are actually talking about not just immigrants and this policy called DACA, but what this means for our country in this can, moment. Can you talk a little bit about the lawsuit and how that would job? We're hearing a lot like the University of California yes lawsuit, which is huge. How will all that work? Will all those lawsuits get coalesced into one uh, test case, ultimately? Yep. Excellent question. So our lawsuit we filed in New York, in the Eastern District of New York, and then the next day, um, uh, 15 states plus Washington, D.C. Uh, also filed a lawsuit. Those two will be related because they're in New York. And then separately, um, the U University of California system filed its own case, and that's a good thing. We want to be in two different circuits. We want two um, okay. decisions coming up against it, but we're working very closely so together So those decisions will go through the circuit and come up. So, um, but, but while that's working its way through the courts, public statements around DACA matter is what public you're saying. Public statements, and frankly, we have the momentum to finally get Congress to act and so that would be the other thing yeah. that I would say is public statements calling for the DREAM Act. Over the next 90 days, we have Hurricane Irma right now. There is going to be funding needed for that. That's another must-pass piece of legislation that Senate and House leadership okay. need to attach the DREAM Act to. Um, how many people here have restaurants that are um, sanctuary restaurants? Do you guys, are you guys participating in that? Is, are sanctuary restaurants an effective tool, or are there other things that the restaurateurs can do? You know, Sanctuary restaurants are very important um, because every way in which people are taking a stand today helps. Every statement, every symbol helps. Um, I would say, you know, it's important to locate ourselves in what's happening right now, to think about how we can play a role. We're, we're in a time of fires and storms, fires in Oregon, you know, storms in the Gulf Coast, but also fires and storms in Washington, fires and storms in Charlottesville and across the country. And um, although justifiably um, a lot of attention has been given to Houston, Port Arthur has also been affected. Similarly, a lot of attention has gone to the Dreamers, and that's very important. It's a, it's a very important sparking moment for a broader movement. 
But the important thing to realize here is that the Trump administration, and I'm not, you know, I don't know everyone's political views here, but the fact is that the Trump administration has, in a single stroke of a pen, criminalized, made criminals out of all 12 million undocumented immigrants who live here. Some of them work in your restaurants. Many of them work beyond your restaurants but are connected to your economy. That's what's incredible about chefs and food. I mean, you, you know, to be honest, may not be able to mount the greatest political campaign and be the reason Congress legislates. But your place of power is in our culture, which is much more important. I mean, every movement that is strong right now, Black Lives Matter, Love is Love, No Human Being is Illegal, um, Si Se Puede, Yes We Can, the, the fundamentally each of those movements is saying, we mean something. And nothing anchors people more to meaning, more substantially, more practically than food. Um, you know, years ago I was representing workers in a labor camp who had been trafficked from India uh, to Mississippi and Texas. Um, they were essentially enslaved. I helped them escape. Um, and one day when we were testifying in Congress, um, I wanted one of the workers to talk about the injustices in the labor camp. The thing he wanted to talk about after all of what he'd been through is how the greatest indignity was that there was no salt in his food. <laughs> now this man went through, you know, extraordinary harm, incredible journey. Um, but the thing that really stuck to him, the thing that was the salt in the wound, was that the food was flavorless. And, and so my question to you is, how can we take um, the meaning that a meal provides and the, and the leadership of a chef um, and show that meals come together because of an interdependent, an interdependent system of people and that migrants are very key to how that meal comes together. We represent thousands of workers on the seafood supply chain, for example. While seafood in Thailand has received a great deal of um, publicity, justifiably again because of the AP and the incredible reporting of uh, Martha Mendoza and others, um, it's equally true that the seafood supply chain in the US is um, entirely staffed by migrants, mostly undocumented people, who are now living in perpetual fear because of the new Trump policies, um, and who by the day, even in the last few weeks, um, we've had a woman who slipped and fell, nearly broke on her, her back on a, on a floor in New Bedford, um, in a place that supplies scallops to some of the finest restaurants. Um, when she was asking for workers' camp, a, a comp, she was threatened with deportation. I mean, these are the stories that I think if chefs bring together their consumers and workers um, and hear these stories, then we can have a cultural moment around the dignity of migrants John. who are indispensable to the food chain. Johnny? Yeah, I want to I want to uh, talk about the get back to the sanctuary restaurant aspect of this too. Um, when we um, and I'm not sure how many of y'all are familiar with Rock, which is Restaurant Opportunity Center United, um, and their offshoot restaurant association, which is an alternative restaurant association to the National Restaurant Association called Raise, which is uh, restaurants advancing industry standards in employment, uh, of which I'm on the board or whatever we call it, steering committee. Um, uh, when we were talking about creating the sanctuary restaurant movement. Um, we didn't think about sanctuary cities and the terminology being so, uh, so directly linked to that. 
it was really more of a response to the empowerment um, of people to blatantly insult or be racist to other patrons in restaurants. Um, and when we were founding this idea of the Sanctuary Restaurant, um, it was never really about undocumented workers, but the connotation is so low, like so heavily loaded with that. You know, I'm in Austin, it's a sanctuary city, or was uh, a sanctuary city, now it's kind of in this fugue state. Um, and it was really about, you know, saying that, you know, everyone has a seat at the table, we're not going to tolerate discrimination openly in our restaurant or anything like that. Uh, but what happened was when we rolled the program out in January, just before the inauguration, almost every single individual employer, we're talking 200 restaurants right out of the gates, faced immediate blowback on social media, um, every news story, that because Rock pushed this, and they're, you know, Saru is a beast and just can get anybody to report on anything she does, and it was pushed across everything, and every comment on every single thing was, we're going to call ICE on these employers, we, we don't have a single undocumented worker at Blackstar, and in the local media comment section, which I read every comment, because you have to, because it's just batshit crazy things people say in there was we're gonna call ICE on Blackstar. Um, and it's like, go ahead, you're gonna waste ICE's time. But the next day, the next day was the like ICE crackdown in Austin, which is just blatant intimidation and fear. And people are feeling that after Harvey now in Houston where you know you don't wanna go to work because you're afraid you're gonna get picked up because now you're um, you know kind of in this unprotected zone. But so what's interesting is to see this thing where we're basically saying, hey, we don't care what you do, just don't be rude to our other patrons or our workers. We're not going to tolerate that. Instantly turn into something about race and discrimination at a different level uh, to the point where people who are still empowered feel like they can persecute your business. Um, and we had some of our friends in Chicago who were like, we're never coming there again. They were like, people were boycotting their restaurant the day this was announced. Not like a week later and it sunk in, like hours. Loyal customers to uh, Honey Butter Fried Chicken. They were like, we're never coming back. And they were facing serious media blowback um, and didn't know how to handle that and weren't really prepared for that. Um, and it had nothing to do with what the program is supposed to be trying to uh, to get out there, which is that nobody in this room is gonna be like, yeah, I'm gonna to tolerate somebody calling somebody racist epitaphs in my restaurant. Nobody's gonna do that. So everyone is a sanctuary restaurant that just haven't signed up. There's like 340 right. now. But that concept that it automatically turns into immigration is kind of demoralizing and shows like the state of the right. country. Too. Daniel, what's going through your mind? There's something that you said which I think is really important. Um, the word sanctuary restaurant, right? Sanctuary is a place where you protect people. But that's not what the word has come to mean for a lot of people. Within whatever we think politically, um, this administration has made explicit what has always been true in our country. And the word sanctuary within sanctuary restaurants has come to mean a, de a deliberate attack on, on, on these values of white supremacy that people have and they have responded accordingly. And we've seen that too. And it's, it's not surprising actually. I wish I could say surprise, not surprising. Um, but I think that there are some, a couple of things that are really important. If you are an employer, if you are um, in a restaurant that you can do, one is that talk to people, ask them how they're feeling. And when something happens, take a minute. Beginning of service, sit down all together and, and I think sharing these moments that are really powerful and emotional and recognizing that emotion is really important. 
The second thing is making sure you know within your community who are the organizations and the legal um, organizations that you can call if something happens. And so those, those numbers should be like right next to your, the guy who fixes your ice machine, right? And, and, that, and I'm not kidding, it's like it's, it's that there's a time factor that is really important, right? So your ice machine goes down in the middle of service, you're gonna be screaming at someone to get there because you're not gonna be able to serve your drinks, right? You should treat your support system the same way. It sh everyone should know about it, it should be on, on this, and people should know who to call and what to do. And then, you know, the other thing is, I mean, this is like batshit crazy, right? We're a restaurant, we feed people. I mean, we are not like, we are not by our nature like political things. We are like the, the places where everyone goes to be nourished and loved. And, and so to, to this distortion and um, complete um, subjugation of what the intent was, as, as Johnny said, is, is extraordinary. And that is exterior and coming into the restaurant, that energy. And, and I think the restaurant just needs to stay firm and say, no, that's not us, that is you and to empower the staff to also feel like they can push that back and to, and to be with them in it. Do you have one more thing you want sure, to say? Sure, I was just gonna say, I mean, I think the one thing, this is me with my lawyer hat thinking of all of you in particular, is this is a moment, look, for immigrants and refugees and Muslims in particular in our country, this is a matter of people feeling it's about our safety and survival, literally. You will either be killed by white supremacists, you will be put in jail, because, of, because you've been detained, or you will be exiled from the country that you call home. Um, and you have a role in protecting yourself and creating that safety, and absolutely, I would say, don't wait for ICE to get to your, your place of business or your community, make a plan, and we have a fact sheet that I can make sure we get out to the collaborative for all of you, um, that is about how do you keep your family safe, how do you make sure your workers and their families and your work family safe, and what your role is in exercising your Fourth Amendment right and ensuring that ICE doesn't come in and detain people, um, including people who have the legal right to be here. Um, let's ask some questions, and y'all can applaud that, sure. Um, and if you have a specific person you want to answer a general question, anybody want to jump in here and keep the dialogue going? Do you all have, do you want to You know, I just want to say that, you know, I, I think that there is a history in this country of business leaders being asked to or recruited to subscribe to the ideology of a police state. I mean, that has happened before. And it is very courageous uh, when businesses say no to that. So I just want to say to you, Johnny, thank you for doing what you did. Um, thanks for persevering. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is a rare moment, though, where we're building uh, a new majority in this country uh, of people who may not have agreed so deeply before or seen each other as family before. Um, and we need to make use of that. Um, if we can weather the storm on the other end of it is a different group of consumers um, who will come to you because of the stand you took. And we need to help make that happen.